Welcome to the Sober Community Channel, where our goal is to open minds and soften hearts concerning one of the greatest healthcare crises facing our country, which is addiction to drugs and alcohol. Welcome back to Bigger Than Me. This is Rocky, and I am here with my sidekick. Bree! What's up, Bree? <laughs> so we're going to continue on this whole stigma series, right? Yes. And last podcast, we kind of, we had the preemptive conversation of like, is this a disease or a choice? Right? Because if anybody believes that it's a choice, then there's a whole nother conversation needs to be had there, right? And, and we're going to now take, now that we've had that, like we'll move forward with the standpoint of it's a disease. Right. So in the interest of it's a disease, now how does stigma impact those who are seeking help, those who are dealing with people who may not be seeking help, but may need help uh, and anybody in that category who, who really is suffering from the disease of addiction. Because stigma, yeah, stigma really starts right there. When, when I'm looking across the table to family member or, you know, my kid is doing this, that or the third. Right. How does my stigma impact my vision on or how does it feel looking in the mirror? That, from that perspective as well, of course. I think both are extremely important, right? So let's just go over some definitions first. Yeah. Yes. Medical stuff. Shamsha. Shamsha. Has, is that how you say that? I have no idea. Do you even know what Shamsha is? Yes. What is that? It's addiction sciences something, I think. Something like that. Yeah, something clinical. They're the experts. Yes, they one know of, what they're talking about. One of the experts. So, mm -hmm. what's their definition? Do we have that written down here? Yes. Ask the definition of addiction. You have a better voice than me. Why don't you read that? I, and it's highlighted on yours. <laughs> Cognitive and affective distortions, which impair perceptions and compromise the ability to deal with feelings, resulting in significant self-deception, so is the not, definition for ASAM of addiction. Cognitive and affective dis and affective distortions, which impair perceptions and compromise the ability to deal with feelings resulting in significant self-deception. So we're going to leave out the whole AA conversation for this standpoint of spirituality, mm -hmm. all that stuff. But from that clinical perspective, right, right and, and medical thing, somebody really can't see accurately, right? So I'm in recovery, you're in recovery, mm -hmm. right? Stigma impacts the person who's trying to get help or thinks they need to get help but is not looking uh, or at their situation accurately. Like what are some of the belief systems we have when we're looking for help Right, but God forbid I tell somebody I have a problem. What's what, how does stigma well, then apply it, to that? It automatically turns into, like in my personal experience, it's been like, how could you not tell me? How did it get this bad? You're not that kind of person. Like addiction doesn't discriminate. You don't have to be a certain type of person. You don't have to be anything more than somebody that has cognitive and affective distortions that impair your perceptions, compromise the ability to deal with feelings. And results in significant self-deception. I deceived myself every day thinking that I didn't have a problem until it finally got to that point where I was like, okay, like something needs to be done. Like I was in such denial. Like that was my defense mechanism with everything. It was just deny, 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 and then get mad if somebody said something to me about it. Right. So there's that quote that we kind of put out before it says guilt is one side of the nasty triangle the other two sides are shame and stigma mm -hmm. so I'm, i by going to somebody and asking them for help 
I have to carry the weight of my distorted perception of a social stigma that's national, if not global, that I'm now admitting I'm pretty much a social pariah, a piece of crap of all of this other stuff. All these negative connotations instead of somebody that's struggling with a mental disorder. Because I'm, I'm ill and I need help. Mm-hmm. I had that same exact thing I talked about in one of the blogs we wrote back in, I don't know, 2000 and probably four. I usually was able to carry myself financially. I had some businesses and whatnot. And I remember calling my mom when I kind of helped her a bunch in the past and then asking her for money. And she knew I ran businesses. And she also, I'd had that conversation with her about suffering from drug addiction. And she knew my whole history. My mom first brought me to AA and she was like, oh, you're smoking crack, which is why you're asking me for money. And then I remember like my mom calling me indirectly a crackhead. Like the weight that I carry with that was just, I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. And then... Another thing with it is when you reach out to go get help, it turns into you put all these expectations on yourself that make it that much harder because you're already in such a low negative space in your head and like in your heart about yourself that you think that you can't do it. Then you you think, at least in my personal experience, it was, I'm going to go to treatment and then what happens if I don't stay sober? What happens if I let everybody down again? So it was easier for me to just continue on the path that I was on because I felt like it wasn't expected of me to do anything else. Yeah, it kind of comes back to miseducation and, and the what we talked about prior, which is the whole choice versus disease. Mm-hmm. I'm under the impression that I should be able to choose better in my life, to show up, to suit up, to do these things that I'm watching all these other people do. And yet, because I can't, I then carry the the stigma of culture of mm-hmm. what an addict is and but I'm like I'm a second class citizen unworthy and then and then somebody steps into our lives hopefully and teaches us about addiction from I mean the recovery standpoint is a threefold illness yes and then I'm I'm absolved from that like I looked at my past and when I sat down the first time went through the, the steps with my sponsor there was like a divide in my life it's almost like my past changed because there was the BDL and the ADL the before the doctor's opinion and the after the doctor's opinion mm-hmm and when I got that information, I was like, oh, okay. So I decided to stop, tried to stop, stayed off of it for a little while, and then went back to it. And tried over... every way to do it successfully. Right. I remember I, quote, unquote, relapsed. I didn't relapse. I used on every flavor of blunt that ever came out for about a year or two. So I decided I can't smoke weed because I'd already done, found out when I drink, I wind up smoking crack. Just that just happened yeah, very consistently. It... But I, I don't, like I smoke pot and play a video game and eat a fluffer and under sandwich and fall asleep. So it's a little bit different, but then I usually would see, it took me a year or two to see the cycle. Now all of a sudden I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm smoking pot. I'm not going to meetings. I'm not doing any spiritual kind of stuff. So I'm already in active addiction. It's just not as severe at the moment. It and hasn't then, gotten there yet. It's it always a yet. There. Yeah. And then it does get there. And then I go back and I trace it backwards and I wasn't able to play the tape, but I look backwards. I'm like, well, I wasn't clean. I wasn't doing anything to stay clean. And then I, you know, from the pot eventually led me to, why not have a couple of drinks which and eventually then you wind up the, smoking crack again. Badlands in Philly, right? And then so then I was like, well, obviously pot's the problem. Cannot smoke pot. And then I walk into a bodega in Philly, and I'm like, a banana flavored blunt, and the whole thing starts again. And then cognac, sour apple, it just flavored. Yeah, you think that you it'll be different. Right, it's I that think. cognitive distortion where you think that you can do it this time. You've thought up in your sick head that there's another way that we can do this besides getting help because that's hard and it's terrifying. And like, for example, what do you tell your job? Hey, sorry, I need to go to treatment. I, I have a drug problem. 
Right. And you lose your job. You lose a lot of friends because people don't understand because they're miseducated. And some of your family turns their back on you. Right. And even before that, when I that moment that I kind of, when I sat down and got the right information and I realized that it wasn't a choice, that it was a mental blank spot. And that once I pick up, all bets are off, right? Mm-hmm. That, that allergy took me, kind of, we, most of us know that. I mean, the way the Chinese talk about that is a man takes a drink, the drink takes it's a drink, amazing. and then the drink takes the man. So I was absolved from the moral stigma of all the stuff I'd done and really finally could give just an inkling of compassion for myself to go, really, this is an illness that I've been suffering from. Which then that there's not itself. something wrong with me. It's not. I mean, there's certainly moral issues, but it's not a moral issue per se. As to the using, drinking aspect of it. I'm sick. I'm not a piece of crap. That's a great piece of information to get, which then, of course, leads to, like, how do I get better, right? So... So let's, let's talk about what the family views when they're watching somebody go through this, right? That must be really hard for them. I know that from personal experience. Mm-hmm. Right? And addiction is a family disease. Yes, is it? The Do the drugs and the alcohol affect one person as far as the intoxication? Yes. But it then goes out in that ripple effect. It's contagious. Mm-hmm. I've heard it said that addiction is the only disease, and it's true for me that I've ever seen, where when the well person attempts to help the sick person, the well person gets, gets sick, sick before the sick person gets well. Right. So interestingly enough, so is recovery contagious. When the sick person gets well, oftentimes the whole dynamic, the, the family dynamic can change. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen a lot too. So <clears throat> that's great on the other side of that. So, so we looked at these... I'm, I'm, these big clinical words get me. <laughs> Cognitive distortions. Oh, yes. Right. So so this ASAM definition talks about the distortions. And then if we take the clinical language, right, which we translate in A to defects of character, and I'm mm-hmm. just kind of an a-hole, right? Yeah. With judgment. We'll leave that for later. We'll talk right? about defense, that. defense mechanisms or what denial, acting out, disassociation, regression, projection, intellectualization, rationalization. So I remember hearing a speaker talking about living in his active alcoholism and that everything he did was like just denying the truth and minimizing the impacts of mm-hmm. what he was doing on his friends and family, all that stuff, and rationalizing his behaviors. How normal is that? Not at all. Right. It's not normal as a healthy behavior, but how, how much do we do that? And then take a look at those behaviors from somebody who's struggling now let's put ourselves in the shoes of the family member that's watching that. I'm trying and to help knowing this person. that all of these things are going on and it's just not getting through. Right. And how incredibly hard must that be? I'm watching somebody that I love struggle and they are using things like denying it, right? They're acting out in all different kinds of ways, right? They're disassociated. It's like it's like it's not even happening to them or mm-hmm. they don't they it reads as indifferent, right? And then I tell them they don't give a shit about them or myself or anything, whatever the case, right? And then I have the stigma that society has based upon that like if i go to my boss and tell them my kid is suffering with addiction how is that going to look upon my family because then it turns into where did i go wrong it's nothing that anybody did or didn't do it's the same thing it it's the same thing you know why are some people born with blue eyes and some people are born with brown yeah, we yeah. would never say, I, what did I do wrong? What did I do that cancer. my child has blue eyes? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. My kid's got cancer. I'm up. I'm screw up. I must have. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not. There's nothing that anybody did or didn't do necessarily. Everybody is different. 
under the platform of choice, if that's where we choose to land in this, that debate, this is why we started there, there is nothing other than judgment. Mm-hmm. I, I did wrong, they're doing wrong, all of that other stuff. If we can adopt, which, I mean, all we're doing here when we say it's a disease is siding with, I don't know, science. medicine, science, the last 80 years of movement that's helped millions of people and all that, that saved stuff. saved countless lives. Yeah, so when we move there, now, now we have a platform for some understanding, which opens up the door for some compassion, right? There's possibly... And empathy. Absolutely. And, and I've I seen it on Facebook when we were reading through that stuff. You, I don't believe anybody could ever understand the other side. I mean, we can educate ourselves, but understand experientially. Because nobody who's falling short over and over and over again is, feels good about it. Nobody's like, oh, this is an amazing thing. I screwed up my life, my family. Nobody's doing that. I ha- I've been on both sides of the fence. As far as being the girlfriend who partied, whatever, you know, did I absolutely indulge in a little bit more uh, extracurricular activities than my friends did? Yeah. But I wasn't necessarily a functioning addict, but I had it together a little bit more than my boyfriend at the time. Right. Who I found out was doing heroin. We did pills together, whatever. But I was just so stuck in the, why can't you stop? What's wrong with you? Why am I not enough? Like, right. what's so much better than me? Like, it has nothing to do with that. Right. And then being on the other side and seeing, you know, it, looking at my mom in her face and lying to her, telling her I'm clean and I can see that she knows that I'm lying. And knowing that, like, she, what did I do wrong? I'm sorry that I wasn't this, I wasn't that. It's nothing that she did or didn't do. And that makes it so hard to try and get somebody help or to even put that that like hand out to be like, hey, I know something's going on. I'm here for you. Because then it can turn into the person that you're trying to help freaking out, being aggressive, cutting you off from their lives, all these other things because it's such a touchy subject. It's one of the things I like about whether it's the 12 steps or I actually like cognitive behavioral therapy. It just works Mm -hmm. in a different way, right? The idea of removing false notions from our mind, like truth, your reality is your reality. Whether your reality is based on truth or not is an entirely Entirely different different thing. thing. So when your reality is based on untruth, right? That like that particular branch of therapy, it unravels that stuff, right? The steps going through the columns and the format and seeing like where my resentments, dishonesty, your fears unravels the untruth, right? My reality is better when it's based in truth, mm-hmm. right? But I have to get broken. Because you can point. get, you can work off that. Yeah. You can't, working off a lie is like working backwards. You don't get anywhere. It literally just becomes a downward spiral. Every solution based upon a false premise is not going to be a solution. It's not a solution. Absolutely. So there's that, uh, that Psychology Today article that I was researching, right? Mm-hmm. And here's what they talked about, about how impacted on, we're looking at both sides of this coin. We're looking at the family member and then the loved ones, right? The addict or alcoholic and the loved ones, whether it's a husband, wife, boyfriend, whatever it is. And it says they wrote, uh, it's a great article. He wrote, addiction is not a one-person affair. Millions of loved ones become caught in the insidious web of deception, denial, and anger. Families challenged by addiction are wounded and weary. They, uh, they experience negative feelings and emotions which block the road to recovery. A major roadblock is the stigma of addiction. It fuels shame which feeds on secrets, silence, and judgment. 
So what are some approaches? I mean, we've, we've, we've put out a couple, I don't know if they're released yet, but we put out a couple of blogs for the people who are in that position where they have somebody that they care about or that they love that are struggling with addiction. Because I think even times well-intentioned, we can possibly make the problem worse. Although we didn't start the problem, right? We didn't make it, we can't fix it. But we can kind of exacerbate it moving backwards and make it harder for the addict, which again, there's no blame in that conversation, but certain approaches work better than others. Would you agree? Absolutely. So how do we deal with somebody who we love and care about, who's wrestling with addiction? I mean, when our first and every single instinct is to like grab them and shake them and go, take a look at them, like, what are you doing? How do you yeah. write that stuff, right? But that doesn't, that doesn't work. And um, Samsha, Samsha? Samsha. Uh, one of the questions that it touches on in uh, an article about stigma was, do we engage in panic-driven behaviors that don't help the overall problem? Right. If you come to somebody that's already in turmoil, freaking out at them because you're upset, they're just as upset. It's You have to be able to take a step back and look at it of how would you advise a friend to go about this? You would tell them, you know, try and be as calm as you can. You know, just go and keep an open mind because two people who are hurting are just going to hurt each other right. if you go at it from that approach. Yeah, it's almost like somebody's walking up to you. They have a wound, right? And they show you their wound and that wound also wounds you and we wind up just slapping each other's wounds yeah and that that doesn't get anybody help that doesn't help heal anything and also panic states i mean how many times have we heard the stories of loved ones family members who literally like deplete their savings accounts trying to save their children Mm -hmm. right and 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 who make themselves physically sick over it right you i mean we're literally talking life and death issues yeah. So, I mean, it would make sense that a parent would be panicked about certain things, right? And then jump. And then the question is, can we get that moment of pause? Can we go and get some help from people who have like-minded experiences, but who have also transcended them? And who have gone through it before. Right. Places like Al-Anon, right? Maybe we should Nar-nar. put the for it. Yeah. Those are, it's, it's weird and it sounds, it's paradoxical, but like the messages of some of those places are like, we can teach you to be okay, even if your loved one is not. My mom was very angry, very withdrawn, very, I'm going to tough love you. She started going to Narnon. And she put in firm boundaries that helped her heal. And she has support groups. She, when I've been doing well, she still goes. When I wasn't doing well, she goes. Because being around a group of other people who are going through the same things as you are and have been in your shoes, there's no other help like that. What were some of her approaches that changed with you after she went? Um, at first it was, you know, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, whatever you need to do, yada, yada, yada. And then it became, no, you're not allowed at my house. My mom kicked me out of her house because she put in boundaries I didn't follow them, and she said, I love you, but you have to go. She changed locks on her house. She made very clear things of, I'm here for you. I love you. Nothing that you ever do is going to make me love you any less. And when you're ready, I'm here. But until then, like, it was very hands-off. She learned to love herself better. 
Mm-hmm. Self-love doesn't allow for others to injure us. Regardless if it's your child or not. That's why they joke in the 12-step fellowships of what's a relapse for somebody in Naranon or Al-Anon. 30 seconds of pity for an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when spoke there, there, our jokes don't work in their fellowship at all. Um, but yeah, those are different boundaries that put in place. Like, like here's the thing. We can... We can learn how to have a spiritual program, and then their concepts come in, like we use the serenity prayer, right, to, to talk about having acceptance, right, or strength and guidance and all that stuff. And then people go, and they when they find a solution for how they're being impacted indirectly by somebody else, concepts like acceptance without approval come into play. I don't like this scenario. I'm not happy with my loved one's, you know, life, behavior, symptoms of their disease that are impacting everything, finances, you know, fidelity of relationships. However, I can have acceptance of the situation without approving of it, which gives me a greater aspect of peace of mind and, and can literally change my life without them even changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it gives you that time to heal because boundaries, whether in recovery, everyday life, you have no idea of addiction, it doesn't matter. Boundaries and learning how to take care of yourself is the only way that we can be of service to other people and be of service to ourselves. And it looks different from the loved one versus from the addict, right? The next question that we wrote on um, when we put that article out was, right, was it do we engage, uh, we did the panic driven behavior, was mm-hmm. are we moralizing the effects of the condition? Hard not to, right? Hard not to moralize when somebody sells your family heirlooms. Mm-hmm. Hard not to moralize when there's infidelity in the household because of drug addiction or it's a symptom of drug addiction. How do you not moralize that? That, the only thing I've ever seen is a process. A process of some kind of spiritual approach, oftentimes it could be therapeutic as well, that's going to help me remove truth. Like that's not personal because literally it impacts you directly. So to be able to find a way to not... To separate those two, it's very hard and it's work. Definitely work. None of this is easy necessarily, but it's a lot easier than waking up every day and being miserable and being depressed and having all these negative connotations about yourself, about the way you've raised your children, about how you treated, you know, your cousin who's now homeless under a bridge somewhere. Right. Like, all of these things that come back, their actions in directly and indirectly affect you, but it's nothing personal. That's the hard part, right? That's the hard part. Nothing is personal. That's when they talk about in the Toltec philosophy, the four agreements. Don't mm-hmm. take anything personal. personal. Yeah, even if like somebody walks up and shoots you, it's not personal. It's hard to play out in real life sometimes. I oh, mean, ab- I absolutely. Shot. I haven't been shot, but I would think that would suck. Yeah. So the other question we wrote, or what was the, uh, where is this? Uh, are we separating the person from their addiction? Right. Again, back to the not personalized, right? Are we moralizing the effects of their condition? Do we engage in panic driven behaviors. So I think one of the things we should do is, because we're not presenting all the answers for this, but these are just some good questions, right? Sometimes it's not even having the right answer. It's having good questions. That and having information, because it might not be the right answer, but at least you know a little bit more or have an idea of, like you said, the questions that need to be asked about these things, or even just to ask yourself. So can we take on this podcast or whatever format we're doing and put some links to some places for people who are listening who have loved ones who are struggling how do I best deal with this yes we have links for Al-Anon we have links for Narnon um there's plenty of meeting lists available online for any area of the country whether it be A-A-N-A-H-A-C-A whatever fellowships we have of course gatehouse treatment 
for those who still need, you know, a medical rehabilitation program. And what about for those who are, who are, who are the ones who actually are in need of help? Who are, I mean, I, I literally just got a phone call mm-hmm. today, as you saw in the office, from somebody who I know who, like, is in a very, very, it's so common for us to just, like, do really well and then mess up at, like, the absolute worst times. Like, this oh. person's about to, like, get a, get a child back, been, you know, doing well for quite some time, you know, and all of a sudden, like, literally, a couple weeks right before all that happens, kind of sets apart everything, pulls it all, the whole structure's down now. Oh, I've done that time after time. Right. Yeah, and has no idea what to do. So, but now the, the, that stigma, and how would that impact them? Like, oh my God, I'm a piece of crap. Like, Yeah, I, like, I, I did so well, like, what's wrong with me? Right, right. All, it really, so much of it appears to me to come back to, like, do we understand it's an illness or not? Like, that, that initial primary question, which the funny thing is, the disease, it's, it's from a spiritual perspective, its best tools, in my opinion, are shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the number one thing it uses. I mean, what do drugs and alcohol work on? They help remove shame and guilt temporarily. Temporarily, but do they add a hell of a lot more? Absolutely. They always make it worse, right? So mm-hmm. we're it's looking a, at... It's a temporary fix for permanent problem exactly yeah I, I the way i word that same exact statement is are we looking for relief or release right because i can get temporary relief through all kinds of worldly things that really are not going to oh, whether it be drugs release. alcohol money whatever it can be anything right but the concept of relief or release right so i mean here we kind of focus on things that are going to give you release there are long-term plans of action i mean everything from the therapy stuff we do to the the staff members we have who are also living in recovery some of them others are pointing in that same direction there are processes for all of this stuff the question is do i want relief or do i want release they're two totally different things with two totally different paths and two totally different outcomes Mm -hmm. yes and i've walked both of those roads yeah and recovery is definitely the better option yeah wait then when they say that line that uh we searched for the easier, softer way, but could not find we it. could not find it. There is no easier, softer way. That implies this is Either the easier, softer way. Get better or, unfortunately, a lot of people are dying at the end of the day. It shocks me how much it's just, it seems like it's perpetuating itself. Two country. days in a row last week. Hey, so-and-so died. Hey, so-and-so. Go fund me accounts I see on Facebook because, yeah, like, it's it's absurd. It's crazy. Yeah. Like, there is help out there. A hundred percent. So let's continue to just keep on stigma and, and, and talk about that because I think the beginning of the help is just proper education, right? And then we'll continue to just put out different topics. If you guys out there, you know, have feedback, we would love to see it. Put it on our Facebook page. Anything that's helped you or loved ones. Yeah, we really want to begin to, now that we've put out that the conversation, it's not about conversation. It's about, it's about a solution. It's about a solution. So that we can't do this is obviously bigger than me. It's bigger than any one person. So what are some ideas you have? How can we impact our local towns, our local communities? Starting with education, but then getting out in the streets with action. So thanks again for your time, and we will talk to you guys next week.